In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, today on the show, we have Brian Koppelman, and Brian is a man of many hats. He started off his career in the music industry, discovered Tracy Chapman, then he switched over to screenwriting, and he's written films like Rounders, Solitary Man, Ocean's 13, Walking Tall, Runaway Jury, and has also produced several other films. Currently, he has a podcast on Grantland called The Moment, where he interviews all sorts of different people definitely recommend you go check it out and today on the show i brought brian on because we just we talk about i know a lot of you guys are young guys just starting off your career and there's this idea or myth that you have to have everything figured out before you start your career and brian's a perfect example of that's not necessarily the case the key to a successful career is not knowing every step you're going to take it's acquiring skills that will open up new opportunities to you as they come up that wouldn't be open to you otherwise if you didn't have those skills. Uh, we also talk about how to handle setbacks, rejection, failure, because he's faced a lot of it as a screenwriter. We talk about his creative process, his writing process. I know a lot of you are creative types. Um, we talk about what he does to get the muses or get the creative juices flowing. And then we also talk about what he's learned about being a man from writing films. I'm always interested in and looking, analyzing films on what we can take away from them on what it means to be a man. So it's, a, it's just a really fascinating discussion. I think you're going to enjoy this. So let's get on with the show. Brian Koppelman, welcome to the show. Oh man, Brad, it's my pleasure to be here. I love listening to your show, so it's great to get to talk to you. Well, thanks, man. So let's start off with this question. You have one of the most varied work backgrounds I've ever seen. And I'd like to use this as a starting off point for our younger listeners, because one thing we try to hit on on the site when we talk about your career is that you don't have to have things figured out when you're 20 years old, right? That there's no straight path to the career that you want. So can you walk us through your background, how you went from music producing to film and screenwriting and podcasting? Tell sure. us what happened. I mean, there. I even think I'm happy. Of course, of course I'm happy to do that, but I even think that the, the specifics of that, and I will do that, I'm not going to not do that, I'm happy to sort of walk through any of the, the, the specifics, but you know, the global thing that I picked up, and not only in hindsight now looking back, but even as I was going through those things, I had a professor in college, and uh, this guy's name is Sal Gittleman, I went to Tufts in, in Boston, and he looked at us one day in, in class, and he said, I just want you guys to know that before you're 30, people live longer now, people have a different kind of existence. There's this idea that you're going to come out of college, know exactly what you're going to do, pursue that thing, and stay at that job forever, that career, that industry. You guys are walking into a different world. Don't panic if you switch three times before you're 30 years old. If you do, I think that just shows that you're curious, engaged, interested, not settling. Remember I told you this here when your parents, friends, significant other are worried that I said if you keep chasing things for the right reasons – 
you'll land okay. And I will tell you that um, that's not the only thing uh, that was sort of like a beacon. But the idea that uh, I wasn't bound by assumptions I had yesterday or a year ago, but that I could take in new information, grow, and make new assumptions, and that if I kept doing that, if I kept being willing to be uncomfortable and take those risks, I would and follow my curiosity. You know, people talk about whether you should follow your passion or not, but for me, I frame it slightly differently. I talk about curiosity, yes, passion, uh, obsession, but if I would keep following the things that I really cared about, and then I worked as hard as I could to get closer to that direction, I was like, well, uh, that'll get me to a better place. And so that, you know, started when I was 19. Um, and I was at college and, you know, then went into the music business. Uh, and I had family connections to the music business. My dad was in the music business, so I knew about that business. Um, but uh, when I found, uh, you know, um, a recording artist who ended up becoming very successful and I discovered her, it seemed like that's what I was going to do. But I, I was immediately, or not immediately, fairly, fairly soon realized I didn't want to be an executive in any business, even a, you know, a business that seemed glamorous. That that, that particular path wasn't for me to be somebody kind of shepherding artist. So for I went to law school at night because I thought I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, and I wanted that education. So I did that at night because I felt like I needed that body of knowledge. I, I needed to uh, continue to grow my mind, and I thought, all right, I'm going to I'm going to do this and, and go at night. And when I was doing that. Uh, I and I really started doing work to figure out what I who I wanted to be. I realized well maybe that wasn't the answer. And uh, around that time, a little later, when my first child was born, that's when it really crystallized for me that I wanted to be the kind of person who could come home and tell his kids to be whatever they wanted to be, and that if I wasn't gonna face whatever I was really scared of doing and I really wanted to do, I wouldn't be able to be that kind of father. And that's when I realized, hey, I, I want to make movies uh, and I got to figure out how to do that. I have to figure out how to live as a creative person. And that's when I then, you know, really started making a concerted effort on a daily basis to do that. And I've followed that pattern ever since. So I would just keep adding. Since then, I haven't abandoned anything. I've just added to it. I've used that same approach to attack any field of endeavor in, in which I was really interested. I'm curious, did you finish law school? Because I went to law school, too. Yeah, I finished, man. Okay, yeah, I did, too. I finished it. I started the blog while I was in law school, and then it took off. Right. And by the time I graduated, I was like, I'm not going to practice law. I'll just do this. Me, too. I knew, and I was playing poker by then, too. And it was, you know, my, my, that was, my wife got uh, pregnant during... The right at the last year of law school at night, Amy got pregnant, and we, you know, started talking about some of this stuff. And then when our first, you know, son was born, our first child was born, I have a son and a daughter. It really was clarifying. And I mean, since then, you know, I've I've thought about all this a lot, and I and I and I'm so I'm so lucky that I had a supportive wife uh, who really is. The person closest to me and always has been, and who, um, you know, said to me, I agree with you. There's more here. Go and chase this thing, you know. And I didn't quit my, I'll say, you know, um, I didn't quit my job through any of that stuff. You know, I didn't abandon my responsibilities. And, you know, I, you had that guest on a few months ago. What's his name, Cal? Cal Newport. 
who's great, a really bright guy, and um, you know, talks about the the sort of pitfall of following your passion. And the the and I understand where he's coming from. Uh, I understand that when you remove a safety net, it can put you in a perilous position. You chase this thing, it doesn't go well. I understand all, all that stuff rationally, but but I'm more in the camp of somebody like John Acuff. Or Tony Robbins talks about, you know, there's a, there is a way that you can, not in an irresponsible, irrational, crazy way, but in a concerted, effortful way, you can chase down the, the thing that you believe you have to do without giving up um, on the, the things that are your responsibilities that you owe, that you, that you need to do to protect your, yourself and those that, that you love. And so... You know, I just would work extra hard. I would get up extra early in the morning, and my best friend, other than my wife, is this guy, uh, David Levine. We've been like brothers since we were kids, and we wrote rounders together by meeting two hours every single morning. He would finish bartending. I would get up early before I would start my work day, and we met every day two hours a day until we finished that script, and we never missed a day, and neither of us ever flaked on the other guy, and we... You know, we did the thing, like showed up and did the work, and then I would go on and, and do the work of, of the job that I was paid to do. And I do think that taking these kind of incremental but determined steps, following your passion, because I think if it's not your passion, it's very hard to do that. If it, you know, much harder. If it's not your passion, if it's not something you believe in, if it's not your calling, it's much harder, I think, to put in the, the sort of super effort that's required to make a gigantic change or to take yourself all the way to the next level. And, and then I think that sort of an unintended negative consequence of not taking those chances is, and this is a core belief that I have, which is that if, if you allow yourself to be blocked, if you don't access the, that, that most creative part of yourself, when you hear the calling to do it, if you do, I think you become, you start to become toxic. You start to, you know, self-loathing uh, shows up, and then I think you take that out unwittingly. You take that out on those that you care about, and it it starts a really bad a cycle of uh, heading towards a place of darkness and and depression. But I think the moment that you realize you can chase something, you can you can believe in in yourself as long as you're willing to do like really hard work to get there, then then I have found through like the life I've been living that the possibilities are are kind of limitless. Um, anyway, that's how you know that's a very I know uh, optimistic way to look at the world, and and I, and I don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, there were a lot of times that it was really scary, and it, and it seemed like uh, failure was imminent. But I'll tell you, it always feels that way, right? I mean, anytime you take a big creative risk. Uh, when I launched my podcast, I, I one of the reasons I did it was I knew I was something in me was frightened of really putting myself forward in that way uh, because I, but I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to have those conversations. I really wanted to engage with people I admired in a very specific conversational pursuit. And uh, but I was scared, right? I have this like kind of I have a really good life in so many ways, um, and I was. Uh, putting myself out there on Grantland, you know, which was a uh, sort of a big platform right away, and I could have really been—I mean, I really opened myself up to derision, mockery, and I was just like, no, like I have to put my—I have to put my money where my mouth is. Like, this is the stuff I tell people. I have to do it too, and um, and I've been so rewarded for having done that, you know. Um, 
in so many different ways just by the people that I've met doing it and through doing it. And I found that each step of the way, the same thing about making movies. Like, you know, I get to work with and be around all these creatively inspired and inspiring people. And, and that just charges my own creativity and, um, lights me up. And, and so whatever, you know, if you ask me to talk about to, to, to younger, younger guys listening, you know, uh, Whatever the thing is that you know lights you up, whoever the people are doing that, I think you owe it to yourself to find a way to start bouncing off of those people. Yeah, and I love your approach because that's the approach that I took. When I, I, I get people always ask me, it's like, oh, you know, I want to do what you do. Like, did you just like risk it all and like, you know, just delve right into it? And, you know, and they always say, oh, you're such a risk taker. And like, honestly, like I'm one of the like the least risk adverse people. Like I'm very conservative in a lot of ways when it comes to risk. And I took that approach where like, I, I did this on the side, right? Like the art of manliness started off as a side hustle, right? Just, I got up right. extra early in the morning, worked two or three hours on it, went to law school, put in a full day of work there. And then I worked on it late into the night and I didn't make the actual leap until I was pretty sure that I could, you know, support my family with this. And then I made that, but I, but I, 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 I did have that, that itch that creative itch there. And I scratched it. Um, I just had to work extra hard. And that's always my advice to people. You know, it's like, you don't have to jump whole hog into it. You can still be creative and take that entrepreneurial risk, whatever it is, um, while still maintaining your responsibilities to yourself and to your family. Um, so I, I love that. Cause that, your approach is my approach. So I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that that's, I really agree. There's a great book on that. Um, my buddy, John Acuff, uh, he has a new book coming out in April called Do Over, and Brett, you have to have him on the show. That book's going to be a number one best. He's written two number one bestsellers, but that book is far and away his best one, and it really talks about this kind of career flip. But he wrote a book called – he's written uh, a book called Quitter and a book called Start, and, and even though Start is the newer one, I would really suggest people look at this book, Quitter. It's um, – Definitely, you know, a, a challenging title. You know, Quitter, it's a co- sort of a, a controversial title, or, but, but it's about um, how to put yourself in a position that when you finally quit and make the change, you're ready to do it, you're prepared, and it's, it kind of codifies this thing we're talking about. And I've told John, I wish that book, I wish that I'd had that book when I was having to figure all this out for myself. You're a successful filmmaker, right? Did screenplays for a lot of um, very great films. But I mean, I know the process of getting, actually getting there is just bereft of rejection after rejection after rejection. How do you handle that as a writer where it's just like you submit something and there's like, no, I don't like that. I mean, what do you do psychologically to handle rejection? Because even our listeners who aren't writing screenplays, they're going to face rejection in their life, some form or shape. So how do you boot, you know, fortress or, I don't know, girdle yourself up psychologically to handle that? Well, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, look, you know, I, uh, I do these vines, as you know, this, this, uh, six second screenwriting vines here that ended up turning into, uh, you know, one of these vines has, uh, like 40, almost 40 million loops. And, uh, and the last one I did, the most recent one, I talked about rejection and I said, you know, nobody likes rejection. It's like, uh, nobody likes getting, uh, stung by a bee. Uh, you know, it hurts, uh, but you know, you have to just make yourself sort of, uh, immune to feeling it. You have to get, just know, Hey, it's a bee sting. It hurts. I'll be better tomorrow. 
and I'll keep moving forward. The beast thing is not putting me in the hospital. It's not knocking me out. And <clears throat> I would say this. Rejection is different than critical feedback, right? And But I do think that in, in, in both things, you can go through a process, or I try to go through a process, which is I try to wait to, to grapple with it until I can look at it dispassionately. And if I can just look at it for a second and decide if there's merit in it or if there's not, is there something useful I can take from this rejection? Is this rejection just that somebody didn't get it, or does this rejection have to do with something fundamental? But I don't want to look at that emotionally. So it may mean I have to look at that a week later. I have to somehow process and move on and then go back to it. But essentially, I learned very, at a very young age that experts are, most, are very, very often wrong. That gatekeepers um, are paid to say no because no saves money in the short term. That saying yes is the thing that puts their jobs in immediate jeopardy. And so if you understand that they're, in all aspects, they're – uh, they're rewarded short-term immediately for uh, safeguarding against loss. Then, then you know it's not really uh, a value judgment on you and who you are and what you are. And you understand that uh, it has to do with the, what their pressures are, what their li- like, what their lives are. And you know, when I the so the the recording artist, the singer songwriter I found when I was in college is this woman named Tracy Chapman, and. I worked with Tracy and made her demos and made her first album and uh, with her, she made the album. I helped her make it. Um, but she was rejected. I would take her demo tapes around to all the studio, to all the record companies, and they all rejected it for one reason or another. And the album sold over 10 million copies worldwide when we finally broke through. And then Rounders was rejected, and I've told this before, but for your audience, Rounders was rejected. That screenplay was rejected by every agency in Hollywood. CAA, William Morris, ICM, UTA, all the famous agencies, they all rejected the script. And then when Miramax bought the movie, uh, bought the screenplay, like the next day, every single one of them uh, called uh, called us and tried to sign us. And uh, I said to them, well, I read them because it was my first one. You know, I wrote a bunch of stuff down. So like I would read them why they rejected the script. And uh, they would wonder that wasn't me. That was my assistant or some reader read it, you know, a million excuses. And, and through those experiences and then like when Dave and I produced the movie The Illusionist, at every step of the way, that got rejected too. And I just learned from those experiences that, yes, it stings, but, you know, honestly, they don't really know. They, they may know, right? It doesn't mean that they never know. But what it, what, it, what it means is that because no is the easiest thing for them to say, because no is the reflex, you have to really fight and be committed in order to get that yes. And so you have to know that you're not a failure. You're not worthless. All that happened is... A business person made a business judgment, and in all likelihood, they're going to make many business business judgments that are faulty, and it's very easy to slot yours into that category. And so that's how I look at it. Again, it doesn't mean it's never emotionally painful in the sort of like immediate moment, but it does mean that I'm comfortable facing it. It does mean I'm comfortable saying I'm going to take these next however many months and write something on spec. As opposed to, you know, you get to a place in this business where in my career we have a track record, Dave and I could go pitch stuff, and pitching is if you're uh, comfortable in a room with people and you know how to talk and you have a track record. Pitching, you can get an answer very quickly. Most of the time you're going to get a yes. They're going to then pay you to write the thing. And But if you spec something, in other words, if you take the risk of writing it without a buyer in advance, 
you have much more control over what happens to the material if they want it. But of course, the risk is you've put in all this time and they don't want it. But I've gotten to a place where I'm very comfortable taking that risk. The show that I'm making right now for Showtime, which is called Billions, and I'm shooting uh, starting January 19th in New York, stars Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis from Homeland. And that's a screenplay that my partner, Dave, uh, and our friend Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's a great writer about finance, for, for he wrote the book Too Big to Fail. Dave and I and, and, and Sorkin wrote this thing on spec and uh, knew we could get money in advance for it from any of the cable networks. And instead, we said, you know what? Let's take this risk because then we can say to whoever wants to buy it, well, if you were to buy this, you have to guarantee us you're going to at least shoot the pilot, which is, you know, a huge investment of uh, many millions of dollars. And not to us, but to making the, the show. The only way to get them to do that, the only way to switch the leverage is to take a risk and to say uh, to create something that they're going to want. But it's a, the, the, the big risk is I take four months of my life or three months of my life and they don't want it. And then I've you know, wasted that time. I didn't earn money during that time. Uh, I also have to deal with the sting of the no. But I've gotten very comfortable with that because the rewards of it are so great. Um, you know, and so I can handle the little bumps in the road or, or losses along the way. I've trained myself to the way a fighter, you know, the way a fighter trains himself to, to take a stiff jab. You know, you watch a fighter take a stiff jab, and we're so used to it now, uh, and in MMA especially. You know, you watch a guy, someone land on somebody, and, you know, a shin kick, let's say, right, in MMA. And a guy kicks another guy in the, in the, in the shins, and, you know, a guy blocks it by lifting. You, you, uh, you know, it's, we watch them do it, and they take those shots like they're nothing. But if the first time they walked in there, you know that that shot to the chin was like to sh- shin was crippling. Yeah. But you know what they do? They, as you know, because you, I know you had Sam Sheridan on a long time ago, mm-hmm. a couple times. You, you know, you read that that amazing thing in Sam Sheridan's book when he talks about how they make their their shins really tough yeah. by like they keep right, they keep brushing them and rubbing them and hurting them and crushing them. That's the process, man. You got to learn to like you know, love that particular kind of pain. Yeah. You got to become mentally calloused in a you way. You do, right? Yeah. yeah. In order to keep growing. All right. So you, you mentioned your six, your, your vine where you dispense screenwriting advice or just like writing advice in general. And I often think that unfortunately, um, like storytelling is often just like, you know, the importance of it's relegated to what you do or what I do, like writers or screenwriters or film. But I mean, do you think it's important for people who aren't in those in that business to know how to tell a good story? And if so, I mean, what are the big checkpoints of telling a good story? So when you say, is it important for them to be able to tell a good story? Do you mean to t- be able to tell a good story um, verbally or to be able to write uh, a good story? Um, like, like to write, like, yeah, be able to fashion a story, whether it's verbally. I mean, cause like I, yeah, I, I can well, see like storytelling, any- like takes it like, you know, pitching, you're telling stories whenever you're writing a memo. I mean, yes. uh, it's an incredibly useful skill to have but, uh, for sure. Um, but I think that it's an innate skill, the ability, we all communicate through the use of story, right? We could all, if you ask any of your friends to tell you the time they were the most embarrassed by a girl in high school, you know, the most embarrassing moment they had with a girl in high school, whether that means they were in a movie theater and, uh, another friend of theirs saw when they were trying, you know, they could tell you the story and in a way that would make you laugh and be engaged the reason they can do that is that 
you know, that moment was heightened for them so that they remember it, but it's also that they're very comfortable around you, that you put them in a state where they're comfortable, right? So they could tell you that story and it's compelling and funny and engaging, but if you put them on stage, maybe it'd be scary. So to me, it's all just about finding the like authentic self, right? Because the more you're comfortable in your own skin, the more you're comfortable being who and what you are, the more natural and easily you can you can uh, tell a story. So I wouldn't even encourage people to think of it as storytelling. It's it's think of it as just communicating and uh, and 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 becoming just more and more comfortable being around people um, and and being around yourself. And and you know the more you're pursuing the thing you're that dovetails with like that strikes the chord inside of you, then the easier it is. You're you're closer to being yourself, and the closer you are to that the more people pick up on that, they see your confidence, they're engaged by you, they read that as charisma, and then suddenly your storytelling is that much better. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Well, one question I was, I was going to mean to ask about when we were talking about your career, right? And, you've, and we've kind of talked about how you've done all these different things. I mean, is there, do you think there's some unifying skill or skill set that you developed or acquired throughout all these things you've done? I mean, what would you say be, would be like the unifying... Well, it's a great question. Connects. You know, it's. It, I think it's it's being able to recognize the things that are going to keep my interest. Uh, what I'm curious about. You know, as a as a kid, um, I was a high IQ kid who was not a great performer in school. And at the time I was in school, people didn't recognize what ADHD was. Uh, there was no treatment for that, so they didn't. You know, they would read that as laziness or as obnoxiousness or, uh, you know, as disinterest. Um, and so kids who, you know, kids who were sort of like undiagnosed ADD when in, in my generation, I think it was really hard in certain ways to hold on to, um, a sense of self, but I somehow had parents who, and it's very important for, for me, I had parents who encouraged me and who didn't doubt my, uh, um, my sort of ability and my intellect, despite doing poorly sometimes in school. And so I started, even when I was young, 13 years old, 14 years old, They when I would want to say, hey, I'm going to start managing bands, or hey, I'm going to go to this nightclub owner, and I'm going to say, can I uh, have your club on Saturday afternoons? I want to put teenage bands in, playing for teenage audiences. Or, hey, there's a guy you know, doing something in California about heavy metal guitar players. I know a heavy metal guitar player. I'm going to figure out how to get them together and take a piece of it like they encouraged it because they saw that I was following this like curiosity, enthusiasm. And when I would be engaged, I would be able to really work hard and perform and get good results. And so I just think that's the, 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 the sort of the signal thing for me. And it, and by the way, luckily for me reading, even at, even though the sort of way the ADHD would manifest itself for me was you know, if I had to read a history, a dry history book, it would be like the book was radioactive. I could not do it. I could, there was just nothing that could get me to read that book. But I always loved novels, and I loved great nonfiction, biographies. So I would read and read and read and read, and I would even take books into, like, when I'd be supposed to reading something else, doing something else in school, I would just be in the back reading all the time. And so that's just a lucky that, – that's like um, – a lucky thing, right? That I just happen to really love to read and that reading, of course, unlocks everything else for everybody. Um, so, 
I loved that, and that would stoke my curiosity, and that would give me sort of like a roadmap of what I wanted to go after and chase. But, you know, I ended up going to a very good college because of all – you know, I was of a generation where no one even knew you were supposed to have all these extracurriculars. It didn't matter. It wasn't something we thought about. But it just so happened I did all this stuff that made me far more interesting to a school than someone who got you know, way better grades than I did but didn't do anything with their lives. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Um, and I think I just probably followed that model the whole way. Yeah, I love the bit about some great parenting advice, like your what your parents did with you, like help yeah. them encourage your kids follow their those curiosities. And it reminds yeah. me a lot of like what like Teddy Ro- like we're big fans of Teddy Roosevelt on the art of manliness. I don't know. Oh, if you've me seen too, that. man. I've been reading. Uh, I I love, I've just been reading the 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 book about you know when when he he was in the. Um, I'm just blanking on the name of it. I've just been reading the book. You know, the one he wrote about when, when he was in the military. Oh, the Rough the Riders. Started. Yeah, the Rough, Rough Riders. Riders, man. Yeah, oh, it's the best. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt's, well, the, yeah, the greatest. Well, I mean, what I, what, there was like this one biographer said about Teddy Roosevelt, like, if ADHD existed, like, back in the 1890s, like, they would have diagnosed Teddy Roosevelt with ADHD. Because he was, that, like, that kind of kid. Like, you know, he, like, I'm interested in natural history. So, like, he, like, would go and shoot birds and, like, stuff them. Right. Or he'd write a book. Um, and, like, she said that, yeah, like, if he was if he was alive today, like, they would put him on Adderall and there wouldn't be a Teddy Roosevelt. Right? Right. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's hard for me to tell. I mean, I've, I've taken Adderall at different times in my life. And... Uh, I don't demonize those things. Uh, I think that they can be useful. I, I've often wondered, you know, if I would have had that as a child, um, whether it, what the, there's no way to go back in yeah, time. Yeah, you never know, know, right? Would it have helped, like, the painfulness of sitting in those classes and not being able to connect? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I, I, there's no way to know. Uh, I agree that it's, um, it's crazy how overprescribed those medicines are. And I, 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 my instinct is like yours, which is to say, boy, I, I think in the end, if you can get there without ever doing it, but I have to see what it's like, you know, under the, under medical supervision, taking it. And I do understand it. It's the way that, you know, you have ADHD is the, the, you know, under a doctor's supervision, like when you're a grown up and you go, what was going on with me? And they go here, take this, take this medicine and try this. And, you know, suddenly you do see the way other people can get through the world. It is a fascinating thing to see. I'll tell you that. I mean, what was the difference? I'm, I'm curious, just like, what did you notice? The, um, the way in which things that would have before utterly destroyed, like the way in which I couldn't focus on stuff other than if I was really, really interested in it, I could focus on it. I could sit and just complete tasks in a much more consistent manner. In, and, uh, I mean, yeah, which is a, for somebody who can't do those things, um, it's a really big difference. Now, by the way, as a grown up, of course, I compensated in all sorts of different ways sure. and figured a lot of that stuff out. But when I, if, listen, if, if when I was, if I could have read the boring history book and I would have gotten all A's in history, right? Instead, I wouldn't read the book. I would show up a half hour before, talk to people, hear what they had read, and still pass everything. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder about it. There's no way I can know. No, There's no, no way yeah. I can go back. And and for sure, 
like in the end, whatever you know, what anyone I would talk to would say is that um, I probably would have just then been like, you know, a success, you know, some kind of a lawyer, you know, some kind of like a lawyer yeah. in the courtroom. <laughs> I wouldn't have done any of this creative stuff. I mean, who? It's hard to tell. You never know. Um, I do think in the end it was a big blessing. Also, obviously, it led me. You know, it probably is what made me an artist, right? Well, otherwise, I probably never would have become an artist. I wouldn't have had to. All right. So you, you mentioned it a little bit, um, your approach to writing. So when you talked about when you wrote Rounders with your writing partner. But I'm curious, what, what is your approach to writing? I mean, it sounds like you have like a very workmanlike approach to it. I mean, yes, do you believe well, in inspiration or do you, are you sort of like Jack London where you have to like go out and beat it with a club? It's a, yeah, I, I, I think what's got to show up. You got to show up. Um, you know, when you're young, sometimes you can get away with the, hey, I'm going to chase inspiration at two in the morning. And, uh, you know, when it shows up, I'll stop everything and I'll write like in the Charles Bukowski fever dream, you yeah. know, um, like, in, I don't know if you've seen the movie Barfly with Mickey Rourke, which is about like one of these kind of wandering peripatetic poets, Charles Bukowski. It's a really fascinating, dark, twisted movie. But yeah, I show up every day. I show up every day, and um, I mean, right now I'm in production, so I'm not. I'm only writing, working on on billions, and fixing that. Um, other than like blog posts or whatever other little bits of writing, because I'm um, casting and location scouting and putting together the show, we start shooting. But when I'm, and that's one of the great rewards of doing what I do is that I get to do this little thing with Dave or in a room writing, and then suddenly, you know, I'm running this thing with Dave and I are running this thing where there's 110 people all working together to bring this vision to life. And, um, but when we're writing every day, 9am in the office, I, I walk, I take, I walk in the morning. My, my, my creative practice is, is pretty locked in. Um, I get up, uh, I meditate. I, I practice transcendental meditation. So I meditate for 20 minutes. Uh, then, um, I do morning pages. So I do like the three longhand pages. And then I take a long walk. Uh, I'll walk my daughter to school, and then I will take a long walk, a couple miles, uh, to my office. I get up really early, so I'm I'm still in my office by nine, sometimes before nine. And um, and then Dave and I meet. And we'll probably you know bullshit around for half an hour, and then we start in, and we just start writing. And we've you know we've made a plan. We know what we're doing. We know what we're doing from the day before. We know where the thing is going. Some days it's really difficult because writing is hard. Uh, story is challenging. Uh, sometimes it's easier. And I'll, if it's not going well, uh, you know, I'll, sometimes it's because, hey, Bri, you uh, flaked out and haven't done morning pages in three days. So I'll make sure I get up because, you know, the time got away from you. So I'll make sure to get up even earlier, you know, for the next week to make sure I don't miss doing morning pages. Because that, for me, is the thing that always starts the creative process going. But Man, I've been stuck. You know, when I was writing Solitary Man, which we, Dave and I directed together, but I wrote myself, I was really stuck in the middle of it, and I couldn't figure out why, and I knew I was scared of something. I couldn't find the answer. I couldn't find the answer, and I, I realized, you know, I don't know what the connection is to this, and the movie's not a comedy, but I decided, I realized in, in like, doing morning pages, thinking that I'd always wanted to do stand-up. I'd never really done it, that I, it was, like, one of the only things I was truly frightened of. And I did stand up for a year and a half. I did it four nights a week in Manhattan. I did it like uh, I started open mics. I ended up getting to be able to perform at a bunch of the clubs in the city, you know, actual real gigs. And somehow in that process, something snapped and I was able to find the answer and finish writing Solitary Man. I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll chase down whatever I have to chase down in order to unlock this, 
you know, the thing that's most creative in me, but I also do show up every day to do the work because I don't know it. Uh, if you don't, um, if you don't, it's too easy. It's just too easy to not do it. And then start tell yourself the story that, you know, you're not really a writer. You're not really an artist. You're not really a creative person. You're a fraud, right? We're all ultimately like all that stuff is, is, is connected to this, this worry that, as Tony Robbins says, that you're not good enough or, you know, that you're, that you're really in the end, if they saw what you really were, they would think you were uh, a fraud or fake. So, but if every day, that's one of the things I tell myself, like a day that I wake up and I'm not in the mood to meditate or I'm not in the mood to do the morning pages, it's easy. And it's one of the things I love about speaking publicly. If I tell people I do that every day. So if I don't do it, I'm a fraud. I'm a liar. So I'm like, are you a liar? No, you're not a liar. Good. Do the morning pages. That's proof that you're not a liar, right? Because show up at your office at your desk and write something. If you don't, you're no better than those guys out there bullshitting people. But if you do, you're telling the truth. And like, you know, so I'm there doing it every day. Uh, you know, it's how I approach, I don't know, it's just how I approach my whole life. Yeah. What are morning pages? I mean, you, what is that exactly? It comes out of Julia Cameron's book, uh, The Artist's Way. And uh, I'll I say there are things in that book that I don't love. Uh, it, the book has a lot to do with spirituality. I'm an atheist. But um, she came up with this idea that if you wrote three longhand pages every day, in the morning, free writing, as like the first thing you did during the day, that it would cure a lot of people's writer's block. And she'd done a bunch of studies with this, had a bunch of seminars, and found that there, uh, it kind of solves many of the reasons people are blocked, and, and the largest reason is people are perfectionists, and they're scared that what if they're not, what, what they do isn't good enough. And the point of the morning pages is you just keep your pen moving. It has to be longhand. For three pages, you don't stop writing. You, you fill these three pages, and what, what happens when you do it every day is first you're like neurosis and anxiety gets out on the page. You, if you, there are things you don't like about what's going on, but – what happens is you've now kind of like wet the the wick. You've now started or lit the, lit the wick. You've you've now started prime the pump, whatever the metaphor is. But you've started to um, get the creative juices flowing in a very free way. Nobody ever. There's much rules about the art of uh, the morning pages. One is you're not allowed to read what you write for five years. Nobody else can read it. It's not for publication. It's literally to just get the shit that's in your head out. And you do these three pages and and. The people I know have actually read Julie Cameron's book and then done the pages. Like, we've actually done this for three months. Um, the percentage of those people who've written books that have gotten published or written movies that have gotten made is staggeringly high. Um, and that's what that, so that's what that is, morning pages, is, is that three longhand uh, free writing pages. And I did that's a big part of when I shifted my life when I was that age, uh, you know, when I was, had my son... Uh, when my son was born, I did read two books right then. I read Awaken the Giant Within, and I read The Artist's Way. And those two, two things together helped me figure out sort of what my exact attack to doing this was going to be. Very cool. I like that. I like that practice. I'm going to start doing that. That'll help me out a lot. Um, so you've made a lot of great movies. You know, you've mentioned a few of them. The Illusionist, Thanks. Rounders, Solitary Man. Uh, you also did Ocean's 13. And I'm curious, like now when, cause I run a blog called the art of manliness. Now everything I do is like colored through the lens of like looking at it. Like, is this manly? And what can I learn about being a man from ah, this? That's funny. So I'm curious, I mean, are there any insights that you've gleaned from your work on your films about masculinity or manliness? And I'm talking like both the good and the bad. 
or do you even think about you know, it at all? It's more, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I learned more of that all about by being a parent. Um, because I, I think I was more, I was probably very focused on that stuff. You know, like the movies that I would watch, Diner or the David Mamet movies or the Godfather movies. They, you know, those things that made me want to do this or that put this in my head and, and that I would watch over and over again certainly sort of gave me certain ideas about what it means to be a man. But in a way, you know, the most manly thing is to, to know that it's all really about what it means to be a human and what it means to be a caring person and a giving person. And, um, you know, and how do you hold on to this idea of manhood while being soft sometimes and and giving? And, but I don't, you know, there are a couple of different like kind of archetypes of the writer and yeah, like Hemingway is like that, that old fashioned kind of like masculine tough thing. But I think that that's an, an outmoded idea of, of, you know, manliness in in a way. I mean, listen, the most manly human being I've ever heard in my life, I think, is that guy you went on a few weeks ago who won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Or sorry, not won it. Sorry, who was presented with. Yeah, yeah. By his language, he didn't win it. He was presented with the Congressional Medal of Honor. Paul, um, what's his last name? Oh, man. it's He's Polish. Um, Buka. Right. Paul Buka. I mean, hearing his story and the way that he downplayed the events of that night, because then, you know, you go and look up the events of that night afterwards, and he did a lot more than he said that he did yeah. that night. Yeah. Um, I mean... But if you really think about what he was, if you really kind of process it, that guy that night was like the most giving human being in the world, right? He was tough. He was courageous. These are ideas that we associate with manliness. But what he really was was self-sacrificing and giving to those, those men on the battlefield that he cared so much about. And... I was so moved by that, and, and I, I called my son, who I never wanted to go into the military. He was 18 and at college, and I was like, you've got to listen to this because there's an ideal presented in here about uh, what it really means to like love your fellow man in a very specific way that I think is and about duty and honor, the obligation to hold to these ideals that just blew, you know, really blew me away. Uh, and um, so... Yeah, I, I think about these things, but I think it's it's. I look at it from a little bit of of the other side now. Gotcha. Yeah. That's that's really great stuff. Yeah, his story was fantastic, and I've I've talked to other military guys, and most of them are are very similar to Paul. Like they're the humblest, and they just talk about, they just focus about their platoon or their group that they were with, and just like how much they loved. Like they 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 say like I love those guys. Like they're, yeah, and I think it's about the mutual sacrifice. I mean, the thing yeah. in that episode of your show that was so amazing to me was, you know, he saved all those guys, but 10 guys got killed. And you could feel the cost of losing those 10 guys, even though it was so obviously not his fault, was so great. The pain of that was so alive, but he also would not indulge that. Like, he wouldn't indulge in... Like, feel sorry for me because of I lost those guys. He was just in every way to me uh, the embodiment of somebody living up to their best idea of themselves. Yeah. And maybe that's like the ultimate, you know, manly thing to do is is have a really ambitious idea of the possibility of yourself and then try your hardest to live up to that. Yeah, well, it's a very, that's a, it's a very ancient Greek idea. The idea of being uh, a man is... Uh, you know, having a life of eudaimonia or a flourishing life uh, and striving for this ideal, you might not achieve it, 
Um, but there's sure. there's growth in the striving. There's something in the striving. Sure, and it ties into what Ryan Holiday always talks about. You know, his last book was about this this the Stoics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 sort of you know uh, handling the the setbacks and, and choosing to, to see them as as opportunities to perfect this ideal self that you're trying to get to. Yeah. So you, you mentioned your podcast. Um, yes. And it's kind of interesting because it's a podcast that with, with you have like entrepreneurs, artists, but it's on Grantland, which is like, I, I typically associate Grantland with like sports, right? And some fantastic sports writing, some of the best I've seen in, in recent years. I mean, what, what did, what's your goal with uh, a podcast, your podcast on Grantland? I mean, what are you trying to do with that? Well, you know, I ended up on, on Grantland because I, Dave and I directed a thirty for thirty on the tennis player Jimmy Connors. Yeah. And uh, and when I was, we were promoting that thirty for thirty, which I got to say was just um, Rolling Stone just said it was the fifth best thirty for thirty of all time. So I love. If you guys haven't that. watched it because you're like, that one. If, if you haven't watched it because you're like, oh, tennis, I'm not interested. Go watch it. It's really good. I okay. swear. Right. Uh, it's powerful. And Jimmy Connors is really tough. Um, the uh, in doing it, when I was promoting that thirty for thirty, I went on the BS report with Simmons, and before that, I'd been on Jay Moore's podcast a couple of times and had done some other ones, and I realized that I realized that I started doing those lines, and I, I realized that I wanted to communicate in this way, and I was talking to Seth Godin, who is sort of um, uh, a mentor to me in certain ways, a friend, and, and uh, gives me great counsel, and and. Seth and I started talking about him, and he was like, yeah, you know, you think to do this podcast. And, you know, I think, go ahead and chase it if you want to. And I wanted to, so I said I was going to do it. And I called Simmons, uh, because I know Simmons, and I said, uh, I'm thinking about doing this. I knew I could do it somewhere else. There were, but I was loyal to Grantland. I'd written for them from the beginning. I really liked Bill. And I, I thought, um, I thought I, you know, that he, for all the reasons you're talking about, I thought they wouldn't want me to do it there. But he was like, do it. Give it a shot. Let's see if it makes sense. So I talked to Jacoby. Figured out that I wanted to center it on, uh, you know, it's called the moment with Brian Koppelman, and the 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 sort of central conceit of the the podcast is that people who accomplish remarkable things process the high and low moments in their lives, the inflection points, differently than we do. They use those moments for fuel, and that's like what I was interested in talking about. And uh, you know, Grantland does have a big pop culture presence too, and so um, as a result of that. Uh, I started doing it with them. People, and I got immediate feedback that people were interested in this conversation. Seth Myers was my first guest. Mario Batali was my second one. So right away, you know, you will see that there was sort of a, a big difference between who those people were. Early on, I had Darren Davis on. Um, I had Mark Marin on. And, um, you know, in the last few weeks, I've had Marcus Lamonas from The Prophet. I've had Killer Mike from Run the Jewels. Uh, I've had poker player Phil Helmuth. So it does run the gamut, but it's, it's my one rule for the show is I will not put anybody on who doesn't fascinate me because I can do a really great job interviewing someone if I'm really engaged and interested. The same thing all across the board, because if I'm interested, then I can go and dive into the research. I have things I've been thinking about for a long time about them, and I can try to bring something out. And I'm, I gotta say it's been incredibly satisfying. I, the one I did with Killer Mike, who's this incredible 39-year-old rapper who's finally becoming a star, even though he's made great music for a long time. We come from such different places, and it's so unlikely in a way that he and I would be friendly with one another, but we've had an internet friendship for years. And he happened to perform in Ferguson the night the grand jury decision came 
Now, he's the only person in his band run the jewels, seeing this guy LP. They were the only people not to cancel a show that night. And he made this incredible speech that you should see on YouTube before he performed. And he and I spoke like a week later when he was playing a sold-out gig in New York. And the way that people across all economic lines, racial lines, have responded to that show in particular, the letters I've gotten, the things people have said to Mike, it's like, uh, it is the most rewarding thing. I know you get it from doing your show. It's so rewarding to be engaging in this big conversation now that's made possible by Twitter and by podcast that, you know, it's not just a conversation with Mike. I'm talking to, you know, I'm engaging with thousands of people about this stuff that we're all really interested in. Uh, and I'm, I'm just so happy to have the platform to do it, you know. That's great. So, um, where can people find more about your work? And uh, besides billions, what are you have any future things planned? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always I always have stuff planned. I um, Dave and I produced a movie that my wife um, wrote based on one of her novels. She's a novelist, and uh, it's called um, I Smile Back, starring Sarah Silverman, and it just got accepted into the competition at the Sundance Film Festival, which is a really big deal. Like 1.5 percent of the movies that try to get into Sundance get in. So. Huge big deal that uh, that film's in, in Sundance and it'll come out next year. And Billions is taking up a lot of my time. And then there's, you know, the moment. If people want to reach me, uh, they can find me on Twitter, at Brian Koppelman. I also give out my email address, which is uh, themomentbk at gmail.com. I'm, I'm happy to hear from you about anything, but if you send me uh, a screenplay or a screenplay idea or a TV show idea, do not do that. If you do that, Brett is going to find the seven most manly guys he knows, and they're going to track you down. That's right. And they're going to hurt you. I know. Don't send me that. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, otherwise, I'm interested in whatever you guys want to talk about. Awesome. I know some manly guys because of my I know you the work. I've, I've, I've rubbed some shoulders with some really manly dudes. It's kind of scary. All right. Well, Brian Coleman, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion. It's been a pleasure. Hey, man. It's my pleasure. I really love your show. I love the work you're doing. Love the site. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Our guest today was Brian Koppelman. He is a screenwriter and the host of the podcast, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. You can find that on iTunes. Also, just Google The Moment with Brian Koppelman. You'll find it there as well. Definitely recommend you go check it out. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you would go check out our store. It's store.artofmanliness.com. You can find all sorts of Art of Manliness products. We got a uh, really cool virtue journal that we developed. One of a kind, unique. You can't find this anywhere else. It's inspired by Ben Franklin's diary. Comes in a nice leather case. So go check that out. Great thing to use and start off the beginning of the year to track your progress and becoming a better man. That's shop.artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.